0: Tune in to 3CR Community Radio,
1: Wednesdays at 5pm.
0: Melbourne's Drive Time Radio Program, featuring community organisations, powerful stories and information. Find us at brainwaves.org.au. Proudly sponsored by Wellways Australia. Hello and welcome to Brainwaves on 3CR, 855am, 3CR Digital Radio and 3CR.org.au. You, uh, My name is Kaylin, and today we are super lucky to have Flick Manning joining us again um, on Brainwaves. Um, so Flick is the CEO, author, speaker, and former professional dancer and choreographer, she, a neuroplastician, a wellness coach, and ambassador for both Mental Health Foundation of Australia and Crohn's and Colitis Australia, And we have had her on the show before to talk about chronic illness and mental health, but today she's here to talk about her new book, Living Human, Sustainable Strategies for Invisible Illness. And before we start talking to Flick, I'd just like to uh, begin by acknowledging and paying my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kula Nation, the traditional custodians of the land to which I'm coming from you today and land where we tell our stories, land where stories have been told for many thousands of years before us uh, by the traditional owners as well and we would also like to pay our respects to their elders past and present and acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners who may be uh, tuning in today. Hi Flick, welcome to Brainwaves or should I say back to Brainwaves?
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me back. I'm absolutely thrilled to be joining you and the community again.
0: Yeah, well, we're absolutely thrilled to have you. So, last time you were here, we actually talked about um, how chronic illness and mental health can be connected and how we can care for both of those needs alongside each other. But mm. today, we're here for something very special because you've released um, a new book. So, congratulations.
1: Thank you. Yes, um, a bit of a pivotal or, you know, like milestone moment, I guess, in life. Um, and certainly a bit of a full circle thing for me in that I wanted to write a book uh, or run it to really talk about invisible illness, I guess, is probably more the point and I promised myself as a teenager that if I worked out how to share that information I would absolutely do it so this is me coming full circle to that so it's very special
0: fantastic and it was only released on the 14th of September and from everything that I've seen online it's doing really well now the book is called living human sustainable strategies for invisible illness and from what I read it's a wellness memoir so what was the reason well I guess you've touched on that a little bit but what was the reason behind writing this book
1: Well, I think it's a it's a merging of multiple things. So yes, it is a wellness memoir. It's sort of a merging or a fusion, I guess, of two different uh, categories, which is self-help and memoir. Um, I personally generally don't like the way either one of those genres (laughs) is written. So I kind of took cherry picked the bits that I liked and placed them together. And Uh, I just didn't really want to be prescriptive. I know how diverse it is in in terms of the experience of invisible illness. So I didn't want to sort of say to people, hey, I've got the the one solution that you need for everything in your life because I know that that's not real. And uh, at the same time, I felt like I I had some some tips and tricks and things that I'd learned along the way that would be worth sharing. Um, The book is really for a couple of different reasons as I touched on at the beginning. Certainly it's that coming you know full circle moment for me of of really when i when i chose to sort of stay in the world i chose not to end my life as a teen with all of these illnesses going on i distinctly remember laying in bed that night tears pouring down my wow. face in a lot of pain and thinking all right, well, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to hang around in this world and I find a way to make this all work, make sense of all of it, then I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that no one else feels the way that I do right now and uh, try and represent our community, try and sort of get some information out there. So it's definitely that's at the root of it. But the other part of it, I guess, is there's two things I really wanted to, number one, make sure that our community feels safe, seen, valued and heard actually feels humanized rather than dehumanized, which is how it so often is for us with invisible illnesses and disabilities, chronic pain and so on. And uh, the only way to do that is to create representation. And so I really wanted to, to try and help with that wave of representation coming through. But the other was to know that nothing is going to change until people have been educated. So I wanted to write it also in a way that people who have not experienced invisible illness Um, doctors, nurses, psychiatrists, and so on that may be caring for or working with people with invisible illness have got some real life, something that they can grip onto that helps them to open their eyes and to make them realize maybe there's more to it than what they've been educated on already.
0: Mm. Wow. So yeah, you took this really raw moment and turned it into something really beautiful. I mean, obviously not overnight. This is something that you've been working on for quite a while. And you know, what you say is true. I mean, I think about, you know, people's experiences, they're always varied, they're always different. But from some of the reviews I'm reading, it sounds like you, you're kind of reaching a lot of that, That's you know, that's information in this book that's for everyone, which is really good. Um, and as you said, especially for those people in the clinical spaces as well, I wonder if, you know, this is something that can help them too. So, I know we've talked a little bit about your own experiences, but can you talk more to some about your early experiences? Um, and did you touch on that in this book?
1: Yes, absolutely. So, kind of the starting point, I guess, of the book is really, you know, that teenage, uh, you know, girl who was trying to work it all out. And the what I kind of, I guess, share in the book is that sort of defining moment where I recognised suddenly I was invisible within the world. Um, by having these sorts of illnesses. So, you know, I've got Crohn's disease, irritable bowel syndrome. I've got, uh, I also have fibromyalgia. There's other, there's so many different things, you know, like everyone with an autoimmune condition, I think we end up with a laundry list of (laughs) conditions, diseases, syndromes and so on. But I also have, you know, um, PTSD, OCD, depression, anxiety and so on. So, you know, I could I could just keep loading up a whole bunch of acronyms here. But the point is, there's a lot of things that I was dealing with as a teenager and trying to work through all of that. So it sort of is that starting point. And then I guess the lessons that I've learned over really the past 20 years and, and some of, I guess, the really bizarre and um, out there ways that I've had to learn those lessons really is what I've I've shared in the book, as well as obviously some, you know, more of the science behind some of the particular sustainable tips and tricks that I have worked on for myself mm-hmm. um, and that certainly some of my clients, you know, find very helpful for them. I do share that in the book to kind of, again, provide a little bit more meat to the bone, rather than it just being,
0: Isn't you know, fairy
1: fairy. Yeah, yeah, yep. <laughs> yeah. So it's a little bit of all of it.
0: Oh, I love it. Excellent. And I feel like you know you've mentioned about how this book can help people with an invisible illness or those with a disability, mm-hmm. oh, invisible disability, I should say. But for those who have very little experience of either I'm thinking key carers maybe family also just people in the general community who don't understand what it's like is this book really for them too?
1: Absolutely you know it was a it was a tricky thing in terms of writing it because when you write a book you know any editor or publisher worth their worth their weight and salt will tell you pick one one very narrow audience and try and only write for them But with what I was trying to share, it it was impossible to write for only one audience. Yes, of course, I wanted my community to feel, you know, seen and to feel heard and to feel represented. And that was, of course, the most important thing was that I did that with integrity and I did that the right way. Uh, But I also knew that, you know, the lives of those people were not going to improve solely based on them taking actions. It's about society changing and that often is in our home. There is so many old and preconceived notions about what illness and what disability actually means in the world and this generationally gets passed on and passed on. I mean we pick it up as kids from watching our parents and our grandparents and so in order to unpack that for us the people that are suffering with these conditions we need society to start unpacking their own preconceived notions about it. So I wanted to write it in a way that they could put themselves into my shoes, into someone's shoes that's experiencing this and understand the difference between what it's like, for example, showing up to the hospital to get treatment with something that is visible and is accepted as normal versus showing up to a hospital with something that can't be seen. Um, And I do talk quite extensively about those kinds of experiences and I get really quite real and raw about it so that yeah, hopefully you were you feeling what I felt at the time. Yeah. And it's
0: interesting because as you were talking, I was thinking about how you and you're talking about that generational thing there as well. It's like often we ha- a lot of our barriers, because I, I too suffer from uh, invisible illness myself, mm-hmm. and some of the barriers that we kind of create for ourselves or the pressures that we put on ourselves come from those previous generations or the community that is around us. So it's also about helping them to allow us to have some space, you know, or to share that space um, in a way that helps us to be heard um, without us feeling like an extra burden or, you know, or that it's not real or whatever else that that, that an individual is experiencing. So, yeah, Absolutely. I can I can see how powerful that would be for sure. Um, I read a recent review from Jacinta Parsons from ABC Radio. Congratulations on that interview. Mm-hmm. And she mentions that uh, your book, and I'm quoting here, contains everything you need to reclaim your life. Um, and I know that she's specifically talking to people who have had, oh, sorry, who have an invisible illness. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So. I tried to kind of cover the full spectrum as much as one can in in one book because like, honestly, like, we could write book, and book, and book. <laughs> there's so many experiences that we have and are worth sharing, you know uh, but I tried to sort of really cover everything from what's happening physically, mentally and emotionally, how those dynamics work for example, in a workplace, in a school setting in, you know, the setting with family and friends and general society about representation so I tried to kind of cover off the the broad scope of what it is that we have to deal with as people with invisible illness and try to provide, I guess, some examples of some of the things that I've been through and some of the the sustainable steps that I've created for myself in order to create a life that I'm really proud of and that I thrive in with all of these things. And I guess the work that I do to try and change that preconceived notion of what disability and illness actually looks like, acts like, sounds like, Because at the end of the day, I think one of the things that happens really, really quickly, particularly if you are dealing with any kind of chronic condition, and especially if it's an invisible condition, is that you are dehumanized. You are stripped of your humanity in fast succession. It it happened so, so quickly. And it's a very uh, confronting situation to be in to feel that All these authority figures in your life, doctors, nurses, maybe family members, people that you look to for guidance and have been taught to trust and listen to are the very people that are ending up creating trauma Mm -hmm. that you then have to live through. And so in a way, I think a lot of people are not living when they have an invisible illness, they are surviving. And there's a very, very big difference between the two. So I wanted to share enough information to help people to feel that the life that they have is worthy and that they are valuable as they are with their condition and there's all these steps they can take to help themselves to feel empowered in that space and to recognise that their humanity is there to be tapped into and it has nothing to do with what is happening in the world around you but what is happening within you. And when you can invest in that and learn to love that, regardless of what's being told on out there, makes the world of difference
0: and again i know for myself sometimes hearing from other people who have gone through these experiences um you don't realize that you're being dehumanized and Mm -hmm. so sometimes reading about it is where you go oh hang on oh i can relate to that so for people who might be listening in today can you give an example of of how someone with an invisible illness or an invisible disability might feel dehumanized
1: yeah absolutely so Some, I guess probably an example sort of straight from the book that that I experienced and one that seems to come up really commonly when I talk to people with invisible illnesses is in that course of seeking medical treatment. Maybe it's seeking solutions or having, uh, you know, routine testing done, things like that, where you are not spoken to as though you are a human being. Okay, so like if, for example, Um, I'm just going to sort of cherry pick a a slightly more again very serious condition but more standardized condition but let's say you've broken a a bone in your arm the doctor and nurses are going to talk to you about how yeah these are the steps that we're going to be taking I understand do you want any pain relief there's going to be a lot of care there's going to be a lot of empathy they're going to look right at you in your eyes when they're speaking to you there's a lot of contact Um, there's smiling there's trying to make you feel better there's all of these things that that go along with those more traditional and accepted illnesses. Mm -hmm. When you have an invisible illness, very often you get a completely different set of treatment. You have multiple doctors and nurses coming in. They're not talking to you as though you're a human being at all. They don't refer to you by your name. They don't necessarily make eye contact with you. There's a lot of shame and judgment that's placed on you as though, well, why aren't you doing this and why haven't Mm. you done that? Rather than it just being, oh, you you fell out of a tree and you broke your arm. Oh, you know, we've got a solution for you. It's, well, why aren't you drinking more water? And why haven't you eaten this? And why aren't you doing that? And there's a lot of these sorts of projections placed on top of you. And very often doctors and nurses, when you have an invisible illness, will be standing around your hospital bed, having conversations about you and your body Without ever actually talking to you, it's sort of you start to feel a bit like a lab rat very, very quickly. There's lots of data and numbers and things like that. But because you're tricky, as they like sometimes like to say, <laughs> you're tricky to diagnose, you're tricky to deal with, um, or they can't, you know, very easily see it from one routine blood test or whatever it is. You sort of become a bit of, a, or treated like a bit of a bother, mm. uh, a bit of a pain to deal with. And so very quickly it's no longer, well, you are this human being that's suffering and we are here to do a job and to try and help you to be in a position that you're not suffering. It's more like you are taking up time and resources and there's no obvious solution to this and you are kind of annoying me and I need you to kind of get out of the space. And that's the feeling of those two things is so, so different and I try to kind of, I guess, describe to people that haven't experienced what it would be like if they showed up with that broken arm to the hospital and suddenly everyone is saying to them just, well, why didn't you, why didn't you just wrap a bandage around it? Mm. Well, why didn't, no, I'm not actually going to give you any pain relief for that. You don't look like you're in all, that much pain at all. You don't need any pain at all. You know, how different that experience would be mm. if you think you're going in there to get help and you're vulnerable and you're scared and you're in pain and suddenly...
0: Yeah. We're not treated. Or, or my favorite one, which is how do you even know you have a broken arm? But I'm not going to do the next ray or do any test to tell you that you're right or wrong. I'm just going to tell you.
1: Absolutely. You yeah. know, we've all, again, with invisible illnesses, we saw so yeah. that where they're going, well, we've run one set of standard blood tests. That's right. um We can't justify spending any more Medicare money on giving you tests when we've got no potential evidence that there's anything else. And you're going, well, I'm telling you that there's stuff that's going on, that's right. you know. So it's it's just such a different experience to have yeah. when you have an invisible illness and it's a very scary position to be in because you're often very, very vulnerable and you're often showing up at doctors and things like that, speaking to people about it when you have exhausted all of the options that you've tried yourself. It's not as though that's the first thing that you've done um, and you're left out in the cold.
0: Yeah, that's right. Now, this, my next question here really relates to, I guess, what we're talking about here. So, sometimes when we see books like yours, um, I often wish myself that I could send a copy to people who make the policies, people in government who make the decisions, the ones that can create those barriers for people with chronic illness or disability. Mm-hmm. If you were to send this to someone, uh, sorry, to some people who make those kinds of decisions, what changes would you like to see made to our system?
1: You know, that's a great question, because in all honesty, I think the chain, there are so many changes to be made. And I think they run really, really from surface level, very, very deep. The entire system is biased against people with chronic conditions, with invisible illnesses, and also with disabilities. It's just not designed for those of us who need that extra bit of care, um, that extra bit of diagnostic treatment, or for conditions that don't have a solution. A lot of us with invisible illnesses have got conditions that don't have a cure. Money and resources are not placed into adequately finding a cure or even creating testing that would be easy to help us to diagnose those conditions quicker. Simply we are devalued. We are not considered to be as valuable as other people in society. And so I think really changes almost have to start there to see that we have value to see that we can actually offer a lot to the world and that some of this thinking is very medieval and very old and that has no basis, actually, in modern society. But in terms of, you know, the everyday little little uh, minutiae things that we experience, I mean, I think, first of all, in the training of people who are becoming doctors and nurses, we need significantly more training being placed on autoimmune conditions, disabilities, invisible illnesses. And I I don't just mean reading from a textbook. I think that's where we're going wrong. I think it's got to be more than doctors just walking around inside a a learning hospital, hearing from resident doctors that have already got their own biased ideas and are teaching Mm -hmm. them to treat patients the same way. We need to actually have people like us going into medical schools to sit there to explain what we're experiencing, to explain how to talk to us, to explain how to get the information out of us that's going to help them to be best positioned to do their job so they can hear from us and see that we are, in fact, fully-fledged, completely whole-rounded human beings that are deserving of care and that they can be a really important part of that step if only they would, again, Look at us in the eyes. Speak to us with humanity and empathy. Believe us when we are telling you that these things are going on. Um, One of the other things I would love to see is making it uh, legal that doctors must write down or document all symptoms that are being explained by their patients. that's a good one. (laughs) I
0: like that one.
1: (laughs) Not the three or four that are cherry-picked as they have matched to some book that they have studied in during their medical treatment. Mm -hmm. And this really comes from, you know, again, like all of us showing up at some of my first medical appointments with 20 or 25 very severe symptoms and watching doctors only write down three or four. Because from there, if you've only got three or four on the list and someone that your GP sends you to a specialist, it's only those three or four that get explained. And the longer this goes down the line and the more you're sitting there going, no, there's these other 20 things, Mm the more that they look at you as though you've got, it's just mental health.
0: I was going to say, it always comes back to mental health. That's the excuse they use yeah. for everything.
1: Exactly. Okay. So if it if it was all documented from day dot, if it was all written down, mm. whether it takes you, it still might take you 10 or 15 doctors in, for example, but if all of it is clearly and adequately written down, you're going to see this pattern that is emerging. Mm. And some doctor at some point is going to go, oh, I've noticed that you've written down that you get, a skin rash when you're out in the sun for 20 minutes. Maybe we need to, you know, check you for lupus or whatever else, you know, those sorts of symptoms. A lot of doctors just go, "Mm, I'm hearing vomiting, I'm hearing fever, I'm hearing this, and those are the only ones that they write down. And I think that those two changes in particular are ones that I would would stand on my heel and fight for. Oh, I think
0: that's fantastic and I would be right there with you, 100%. (laughs) So the last time you were on the show, COVID had just started to impact everyone and throughout the past 18 months or so, I have seen an increased um, increase in accessibility options for people who may suffer with an invisible illness or even just a disability. Um, now that things are potentially opening back up, do you think that we can maintain that accessibility for everyone?
1: Look, I have certainly got some concerns about how things are going to be changing, obviously, We've only just had our roadmap announced and for a lot of people in our community, this is not a time of joy or celebration but a time of deep fear and panic because of, uh, again, us being devalued, um, the way that we may simply be triaged or not treated appropriately in the healthcare system if it starts to become overwhelmed. These things are not the ideal position to be in and very, very scary when you've got a pandemic that is looming continuously around us as society moves forward. It is my hope that over this past 18 months or so that people will have, number one, experienced working from home. They will have experienced having to kind of be better with their tools like Zoom and Skype and all of these different sorts of things, that they will have thought about making events and turning them virtual as well as in person, and that they would continue on with that. But I also know that there is a a, deep desire for the wider community to get back to normal even though that normal is gone they're still going to try and get back to to that it it, will never go back to that it's going to create some kind of new normal I hope and hope and pray that enough of our voices have been heard during this time and enough experience has been had that workplaces will continue to offer working from home and flexible options that Events will continue to be put online and made available in those ways. That telehealth will still be a really big factor for people, you know, seeking healthcare and things like that. But I also know that some of these things will, just based on conversations I'm having, I'm seeing, you know, workplaces getting really excited about, oh, we're going to get you all back in again. And I think what we just really need for everyone is in this excitement and in this bubble of emotion, just to take a really big, Deep inhale and exhale and have a bit of a think about the wider world, not just your experience of it, but the wider world, and think about how we can continue to include some of those accessibility options. We, you know, we really, really need to so many of us are fully capable of being employed, if only they will keep these work from home policies in place, for example. We could create a lot of jobs and create a lot of value if these things actually do stay in place, which would be so good for our economy, which is so much of the push as to why we're coming out of lockdown. So if we can just think a little bit bigger and slow down, I think, you know, we can get there. But I think it's going to be a bit of a bumpy road ahead.
0: Mm, Yeah, no, I agree. So self-care is talked about a lot, and I often wonder if people really understand what it means or how it helps. Um, I know we've talked about it the last time you were on the show, but can you shed some light on the importance of self-care, especially for people with an invisible illness, and what self-care may look like for people who experience day-to-day challenges associated with illness or disability?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Look, there's no one simple answer to self-care, and I think that's where some of the confusion comes from. Self-care actually doesn't look the same from person to person and it never will. One of the biggest downfalls we have as a society particularly where there is a serious lack of representation when it comes to disability and illness is that we project these ideas of what well-being and what healthy and what, you know, popular and happy and all of these things should look like and how they should behave, sound, act and be. And those things don't actually make sense from one person to the next we, a lot of our mental health and physical health issues, a lot of the things that we experience in life actually come from us trying to carbon copy ourselves as the person next to us. And this causes a lot of issues for people with invisible illnesses, because if you go to your doctor and your doctor just says to you, you need to do more exercise and you need to eat better. Well, what does that actually mean? Well, that means that you're going to go off and you're probably going to go onto Instagram or you're going to go and connect with some of your friends and they may or may not have invisible conditions that That's the same right. for a start. And you're going to look at them and they're off doing kickboxing and this person's off doing yoga and that person's running and you're going to go, well, my best friend's doing running. So I'm going to go and try and run. And within maybe a week of running without probably having anyone to guide you on how to taper up and ramp up slowly and prepare your body for these different sorts of activities to understand what chemicals are being produced in the body how that's going to you know increase or decrease inflammation pain you're going to run at it like a like a bullet a gate you know find yourself flared up and in a lot of pain and that's going to put you off because you're still going to take three weeks to recover from that one attempt what we need to do instead is actually go what works for me? Here are the 10 different things that I would be willing to try. And this is how I'm going to slowly and effectively, one by one, trial them and see how my body reacts, see how my body reacts to food, see what I'm drawn to, see how I emotionally feel after I do an activity or consume something or whatever it is. And slowly over a period of time, work out from that hey, actually I'm better suited to doing Pilates and I need to do it for only 30 minutes and it needs to be in the morning. And afterwards I need to do this and I need to eat this kind of food. And I've found out that I've got a gluten allergy and I've done, you know, X, Y, and Z. And I also have got, I'm learning a breathing technique and so on and so forth. I love that. the list of things that you're going to need is so different to what it is for the person. Mm. Yeah,
0: and it sounds like you're saying it needs to be sustainable, so that's super
1: important. Yes, and again, that's you know, again, for people with invisible illness, so many of the things that are on offer to the wider community are simply not sustainable. You know, we may not be able to go into the gym three times a week on a particular day to work with a personal trainer mm. because. Maybe someone's brought a cold into the gym. Now the gym's an at-risk space for us because our immune systems can't handle being in there. Or, you know, actually I've flared up. So I'm going to miss those two personal training lessons that I've just spent a fortune on. It needs to be things that you can can do and sustain and understand how it works for you in your lifestyle with your budget, your constraints, Fantastic. you know, things that nourish you and make your life actually easier. Um but is, yeah. exactly. But it is a process. And I think we are so so used to this dopamine fix of instant gratification in life now that we just you know we're in a position now where if we've tried something once and it doesn't immediately work for us oh it's all everything's too hard instead of actually going this I have to live in this every day this is worth the investment because no one give me a new one (laughs) <laughs> well, that's it. Exactly. Well, that is great
0: advice to wrap up on today. Thank you so much, Flick, for coming on the show and talking about your book. It's been wonderful to have you and good luck with everything and congratulations again on your new book, Living Human.
1: Thank you so, so much. I'll speak to you again another time, I hope. Thank you
0: so much, Flick, for coming on the show today. Um, if anyone would like to get a copy of Flick's new book, I'll be sure to include all the information in our show notes as well as how to get in touch with Flick. And as usual, you can find more of our shows on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au or on Spotify, wherever you happen to download your podcast. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, um, just chuck us an email at brainwaves.org. Thanks for listening, everyone. Stay safe. We'll back next week on Wednesday at 5pm for another episode of Brainwaves on 3CR.